0: The music today has drawn our hearts to a greater appreciation, I think, of what Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary, and that's why we're here today, to consider that. If you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, I'd like to take a few moments this afternoon to look at the crucifixion from the perspective of different people who are mentioned in this chapter, Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 56. In your pew Bible, it's uh, page 906. I don't think any of us can stand at the foot of the cross and observe what took place on that cross and remain unmoved. I think it it requires a response. It always has in the generations of history and it does so today as well. The first perspective I'd like to see is from that of the malefactors. In verse 32 of Luke chapter 23 we read, And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. The word for malefactors is a word in the original that means evil workers, Matthew calls them robbers in his account. Mark calls them criminals. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John also include the word thieves. So we get an idea of what these men were like. They must have been like Barabbas, who was in prison at this point, waiting to be crucified. He was an insurrectionist, an outlaw, an enemy of Rome. When Pilate found no fault in Christ, it may be that he sent Jesus to be crucified, perhaps to mock anyone who would bring in an attempted king, the king of Judah, while Rome was in control. Isaiah pro- had prophesied the death of these malefactors 700 years before. Isaiah 53, 9, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Isaiah 53, 12, he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. As I read about these two men, one on each side of Christ, I cannot escape the fact that when he was numbered with transgressors and praying for them, that I am also... One of the greatest transgressors. He was numbered among men. The holy, sinless, perfect Lamb of God came to earth to live as a man among sinners so that he could die for my sins. I'm so glad that he was numbered among transgressors. He humbled himself and left heaven for the cross. Philippians 2.8 Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. In doing so, he identified with us, with sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then that prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them. He made intercession for the transgressors. He prayed. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, that doesn't mean that because of their ignorance that man is excused. It made forgiveness available for any who would believe in him. One thief refused him and said, If you're the Son of God, save yourself and us. The other believed, accepted him. He said, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus answered in verse 43 of the chapter you have opened, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Another perspective on the cross was that of the crowd. The people are mentioned in verse 35 at the very beginning of the verse and also in verse 48, verse Luke 23:35. And the people stood beholding. It's often been guessed at who, how many people were in Jerusalem at this Passover time. There was a Syrian governor who had the high priest count the sacrificial lambs that were slain, and then he multiplied that number by 10, the smallest amount that he thought a lamb would feed, um, and he estimated that there were 2.5 million who came to Jerusalem, and those were just the worshipers. There were the Gentiles. There were the Roman soldiers. And so again, the estimation is about 3 million who were there. The people stood beholding. Luke 23, 48 tells us how they responded to what they saw. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. In that verse we say they came together. It was at that one spot outside the city walls where Calvary was. They beheld what was done and they smote their breasts. This was a horrible scene. This caused sorrow and grief just to witness it. And it says they returned. They went to their homes. And we can only imagine what that meant, what they were thinking of as they went home after seeing something like that. Did they look at it as a tragic event that they just wanted to forget and go on with their lives? Did they ever come to a place of faith in Christ because of what had taken place? We're not told. Another group here are the rulers, the religious leaders. They had their opinion. How did they view the cross? We read in verse 35, and the rulers also with them, that is also with the crowd, derided him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he be the Christ, the the chosen of God. And so this verse indicates that the rulers and the people were the ones who were joining together in the derision. They mocked him, they ridiculed him. What they said is recorded, he saved others. If he's the Christ, the chosen of God, the Messiah, he should be able to save himself. That was also prophesied in Psalm 22. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lip and shake their head, saying, he trusted on the Lord that he should deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighteth in him. The hatred of Jesus began at the very beginning of his ministry as he cleansed the temple. He said, you've made my house a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. And When the scribes and Pharisees heard that, that's the first indication we have. They went about seeking how they would destroy him. And as you read through the life of Christ, you see again and again, this, this desire to end his life was in their hearts. And at this Passover week, their hatred had finally found a door of opportunity to act. These religious leaders arranged their own trials and turned Christ over to Rome, who could crucify him. They couldn't. There were six trials of Christ, three religious trials, three civil trials. At the last civil trial, Pilate was on the, on the seat, and he said he, he wanted to release him. He found nothing, no fault at all. John tells us what happened next in John 18, 38 and 39. Pilate said, I find no fault at all, but ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let's consider next the perspective of the Roman soldiers who were also there. In verse 36, and the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And the superscription over the, also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. What did they see, these soldiers, when they looked at this Christ on the, on the cross? The brutal marks on his body were evidence of the mock trial that he had already endured. Blood flowed from the brow of his head. Roman whip, the flagrum, was embedded with pieces of bone and sharp rocks. They had plowed his back, Isaiah had prophesied that. Isaiah 56, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheek to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. His face was bruised, was buffeted, was bloody from his beard being pulled out, the spittle of contempt mingling with the blood. And Isaac wrote, Isaac Watts wrote, to see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? We sang those words. A quaternion, which is a group of four soldiers, were assigned to the task of crucifixion. The nails were pounded through each wrist. The feet of the victim were twisted sideways and secured with one more nail. These three nails would allow the victim to lift his body in agony for each breath of air. The cross was dropped into a hole. The soldier's work was almost done. Now they would sit down and divide the garments, a small pay for what they were doing. Matthew says they offered wine mixed with gall, bitter myrrh, gall is is myrrh. One of the gifts of the Magi was given at the beginning of his life. It would dull the pain, but he refused it. And finally, after three or four hours, these four soldiers would break the legs of the victims so that they would actually die by suffocation When they came to Christ, they found that he was already dead, and so they pierced his side with the spear, and out came blood and water, evidence that he was already dead. The wound, a proof that the the, the water, uh, the pericardium, the sack around the heart, had already been ruptured. Roman soldiers watched. Centurion was also there. He saw what took place, And he concluded that this was the Son of God. There was darkness from noon until three. The veil of the temple was torn in half from the top to the bottom. And in verses 46 and 47, we read of the centurion, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done... He glorified God saying certainly this was a righteous man. It was in Mark chapter 15 verse 39 that his words were he is the very son of God. This centurion was the ruler over 100 Roman soldiers. He had probably witnessed many crucifixions maybe he even had developed a callousness to the whole occasion. To him these were criminals who were the enemies of the Roman government—they deserved to die. There was something in this man that was different, something that caught his attention, and he—he he confesses, "This was the Son of God." Listen to what Jim Chalice writes. What an awesome, exciting testament this is to God's divine grace. God was willing and eager to save one of those primarily responsible for the murder of his son. A man who watched Jesus be scourged, who watched his soldiers mock and abuse him, and who probably enjoyed every minute, suddenly cries out in terror, realizing that he has killed an innocent man. His cry of terror is also an expression of faith as he confesses his newfound knowledge of the Son, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We also see the friends of Jesus who are standing afar off at the cross. In verse 49 they're referred to as his acquaintances and the women. All his acquaintances and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off beholding these things. Mary, his mother, was there. Imagine what she thought. She had held those soft hands in her in her hands and now she sees the nails piercing them. She had traveled back to Jerusalem to the temple to try to find her son and all she found all that were there in the temple astonished at what he was saying the questions and the the things that he was adding his answers. She had seen his miracles beginning at the the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee. But now he seems powerless to to protect his own life. She must have thought back on the angel's announcement. In Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, there are five things in that angelic announcement to Mary. That her son, Jesus, will be great. He'll be called the son of the Most High. He will be given the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. And what must she have thought as she saw him dying there? How can his kingdom continue when he's he's no longer here? But this is not the end of his life. This is the accomplishment of redemption, the beginning of eternal life for those who would believe. Jesus said about his life in John 10, 18, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. The Apostle John was also there. The women from Galilee were there who witnessed his death on the cross. John 19.25 tells us that were not only Mary and his mother and John, but Mary's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene were also there. Arnold Gabeline writes, the faithfulness and courage of these holy women can never be sufficiently admired. As long as the world stands, they supply a glorious proof of what grace can do for the weak and of the strength that the love of Christ can supply when all men but one forsook our Lord, and that would have been John, more than one woman boldly confessed him. The last perspective we'll see is that of Joseph of Arimathea, verse 50. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a sepulchre that was hewn in stone, wherein never a man never man before was laid. We learn something about Joseph of Arimathea in the other gospel writers. He was wealthy, he was a disciple, a follower of Jesus, he was an honorable counselor, a well-informed advisor, a member of the Sanhedrin, and he was waiting for God's kingdom. We see his love for Christ as he he wants to take care of the lifeless body. He asked Pilate for permission to take the body. His timidity has now changed to boldness. Mark says he went boldly unto Pilate. He prepared the body for burial. He put it in his own tomb. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher. In all of these, we see a response to what took place at Calvary. Every person who looks at the cross will respond in some way. Some believe. Some mock. Some doubt. Some put it out of their minds until later what will you do how will you respond to what took place at Calvary he died for you how will you respond